2020, we started to realize that most of us were part of the biggest movement in human history. And that movement was really aimed at saving civilization. This world has more of inequality, you know, that children are not hungry, that no one is hungry, in fact, uh, because there's absolutely no need for that, nor was there ever any need for it, and that people are living lives which, which feel to them to be useful and rewarding and meaningful, that everyone feels that they have the psychological space, I think, which is terribly important, to be creative and to really, to really be their best selves. So much more of our time, individually and collectively, is spent on art, is spent in dance, is spent in the kind of creativity that is both has a personal expression in it, but is also aware of and serves the whole. So there's this room for creativity, there's this room for exploration. Economic policies will start to be based on abundance rather than scarcity. Taking the natural world as a model to emulate. Just think of the acorn as a model. The barriers adults have erected around their houses are reducing height. They mingle and feel part of their communities, as, as do their children. Communal spaces are available for those living in multi-level housing, and these are well kept and well used and importantly fit for purpose. We have these two principles, Mama Bisu and Alabisu. Mama Bizu is a question that you ask to somebody, an individual. It means essentially, do you have enough? Do you have what you need to live your life with a sense of dignity, safety, sense of belonging? Do you have enough love? Do you have enough medicine? Do you have enough shelter? Do you have all of the things that you need so that your spirit can be at rest, so that what you carry within you, whatever dream it is that you carry within you to share the world can rise up and be offered to the world so people's creative intelligence is able to rise up and they're able to bring forward the gifts that they carry uh, in a way that is unobstructed by judgments that are based on things like commerce. But Mama Bisu is always balanced with Alabisu because you can't have Mama Bisu, you can't have enough if Alabisu is not true. And Alabisu is, does everyone have enough? Does everyone have enough to live their lives with a sense of dignity? Because there's a recognition that we can never be okay unless everyone is okay. As we look at 2030, what we notice, first of all, is a huge increase in the number of things that people have and do in common. Now, the idea of community had become the central idea of society by 2030. And of course, what holds communities together is sharing commons. At the center of the idea of community is the idea of a commons. There are things that we keep together and that we share that none of us own individually. 
we would be moving toward a greater sense of awareness of the benefits of communal living and recognize that our humanoid species did not survive by living individually, but by living communally and cooperatively and collaboratively. And we would see that across the board, that we would not be living in an exchange economy, that we would be living in a maternal economy, a mother love economy that was based on principles of Mama Bisu and Ella Bisu. People are able to have what they need and then whatever they have in excess is given to others so that everybody has enough. If the political systems by then have not enacted change, then communities will be realizing that we have to make this change for ourselves. And that, so the roofs of our street will be full of solar panels and the air will be cleaner. People will have more time like they had in lockdown, but it, obviously there was a big divide and inequality in who had the time to tend gardens and, and make those decisions to eat more healthily that at the moment are governed by economics. I think it all will stem in these years from education across from communities and educating and empowering themselves and that together we will all realize that we can that we we can make change. Here are what things look like when we are in a place of connection, right? Here is the way that our, the system of our world, the structure of our world, the way we're in relationships, honor that we are connected to each other as opposed to assuming the disconnection that is then shaped by power, by supremacy and, and depression, and also by grief and rage that's not expressed. And so for me, I want to say that the 10 years feel that what's possible is that we can have intention, right? the intention that is prayer, that is casting spells, that is strategy. But we also have no idea what that looks and feels like. Very few of us live in the deep intimacy of what Stacy just named. So for me, the 10 years is about actually being able to come collectively to wanting that and to wanting that more than we want our comfort with the present moment that is. It was very difficult to envision the world that you're talking about, um, particularly within 10 years. There's a couple of ways that could happen. Look, in the end, you have to choose. You, you can have the vision that you're talking about or you can have civilization. And that's it. Because it's not possible to have a civilization and uh, the vision that you're talking about. 
particularly um, an industrial civilization and particularly um, civilizations based on that. It's only about a century year old, this, this system, this idea of nations. It simply isn't possible. It's not possible to have these communication devices that we're using right now that depend on rare earth metals. Basically, it is not possible to sustain this, this civilization for much longer. It's, it's certainly not possible to sustain it for another decade without going, I mean, we're probably past the tipping point now, I'd say. There's more than just carbon going on. You know, we're, we're in the middle of the biggest species extinction in forever. There, there isn't a, you know, getting to 2030 and everything's fine. However, there's one slim chance, and that's if there's a, a massive solar flare and an electromagnetic pulse from the sun that wipes out all of this tech, puts everybody back a few hundred years. And then I guess, I don't know, if that happened next year, then maybe within about eight or nine years, all the sort of bandits and uh, no good people will have made themselves into jerky over tire fires or something like that. And wiped each other out and then then you'd probably see some uh, real human societies emerge again that were based on bioregions that are interdependent and um, with uh, languages and cultures and laws being shaped uh, by each bioregion in those particular landscapes and some meaningful trade and hopefully there'd be a few cautionary tales that would be handed down for quite a long time to to stop us from going back to that again but look, in disasters, uh, you find that, that we just get back to business. Our behaviors, you know, as an organism, our behaviors for being together and being on the land and caring for the land are just patterned within us. Like the migration routes of whales and birds, you know, these are patterned in us. And whenever there's a disaster, this emerges again. A disaster being a temporary disruption to um, the control of the state and the marketplace with these sharing economies and people looking after each other. I mean, it sounds like a grim picture I'm painting, but massive calamitous disasters would probably be the best thing that could happen for us. And we would see um, uh, all of these um, wonderful things emerging again. The COVID crisis was the effect of two grams of coronavirus. That two gram monster is, is what has brought our world to its knees. Of course, as soon as that happened, we started to realize what mattered. We started to realize who essential workers were. They weren't hedge fund managers. They weren't even politicians. They were people who ran things that help us, things that help us stay alive and cooperate with each other. The most useful people 
are almost inevitably the least well-paid people. So in this age, what there will be, and I try to put this into words, a currency of compassion, which assigns a proper value to the work of those who care for others. The pandemic demonstrated that carers are among the least well-paid and the least protected of all UK health workers. And as well as being unjust, this is an absurdly unwise miscalculation, since it's now obvious that in future pandemics, the caring professions will need the most skilled, able and qualified people available. I'd like to welcome you to Oakland, California. Although we may have renamed it um, after the original inhabitants of this land and, and what they called it. Um, it is still, though, a city by the bay with a beautiful lake right in the heart of downtown. And you still find people jogging around it and biking and the air is clear. Um, it's still a space of recreation where all are welcome, but it's also now a space of, of restoration where day and night and by night we see the string lights around the lake, which are solar generated, still illuminating those conversations that you smell, pupusas and barbecue. Um, and there are conversations about healing, healing the past, healing the present um, and healing into the future. We talk about the Costanoan people and the indigenous folks who are with us talk and lead conversations about how we can heal the genocide of indigenous people that, that happened here in California. We talk about how to heal from more recent discrimination, the, the barbecue Beckys, the micro and macro aggressions that impacted black folks, that impacted queer folks, that impacted so many communities. And we also look to the future and we're continuing to assess how the resources within Oakland should be distributed. The lake is a center of those conversations, but it's not the only center because every neighborhood, there are no longer poor and marginalized neighborhoods. Every neighborhood in Oakland, we see people coming out of their homes. We see people engaging in work to restore the environment. Places that were once centers of commerce and, and distraction like Bay Street are returned to the spiritual places, the shell mounds that indigenous people created uh, ages ago. That kind of restoration is happening also at Eastmont Mall, which in the 1920s was a car factory and then became a mall and then became a town center where marginalized folks went to collect social services. But now it's a space where people are engaging in the sharing of wealth, uh, having conversations to heal communities. 
And I actually see some of that happening right here in the present, the beginnings of that, the black cultural zone. We just had, you know, artisans and, and folks from different communities at Eastmont just a few days ago, coming out even despite COVID. And, and I think about how 10 years ago, things were so different and now that environment has completely taken over the entire neighborhood and so people are exchanging ideas they are healing harm and there is no longer a dependence on incarceration and policing as people now clearly identify those as being false solutions to creating community safety By the end of the 2020s, people had lost respect for wealth. It was seen to be purely a systemic kink that some people could become unbelievably wealthy. It wasn't seen as a reflection of their brilliance. It was seen more and more as just a kind of funny kink of the system that some people got completely left out of it. You know, there, there had been a lot of poverty and it was increasing. And some people did incredibly well out of it. And there was a, a new kind of social disdain for very wealthy people. The huge wealth was seen as unattractive, as it showed a, a lack of something, not a presence of something. So by the end of the 2020s, the people who were wealthy as a result of the systemic kinks were very anxious to shed as much of their wealth as they could to and share it out with other people just to be socially acceptable. First of all, we've really shifted out of a racialized capitalism. And there's been this radical redistribution of wealth and land to the commons. And that there's a deep understanding and collective practice that says, I'm well if we're well, and we're well if the earth is well. And really our institutions, our structures, and our practices is deeply informed by that radical reorientation really that we've shifted away from the isolation the trauma and the exploitation of accumulation and really um, remembered that that i'm well when we're well when when we're connected to the planet and the planet as well
politics, I think, is going to be, again, more local and regional. You know, people will be engaging in sorting out their issues at local and regional level rather than the kind of politics that we read about in the newspaper today. We have effectively proven, I think, on a community scale that we can bypass the political structures which are standing in the way of that at, at this moment. So it's a, it's a world where community projects have, have proven uh, the way out. So I, so I feel that, that we have, uh, have neighbourhoods which, which connect to, well together and that people are sort of chatting in the streets, planning things in the streets, where there's less kind of busyness in the sense that people are not having to rush around and feeling deeply kind of stressed by the needs to acquire the very basic things in life, but where people instead are able to kind of have the time and the space to be as creative as possible and also they have a kind of um, experience now. They've built up some form of experience of, of basically participating within this change that they have created so that there's a widespread participation in the construction of this world which is not as you say perfect and nor is it utopian but which is a a work in progress you know much like the world is now and, and probably like the world will be in 2030 and on. I'd see myself walking in in my local street in southeast London in 2030 and what I can see is few cars it doesn't look like like necessarily like a jungle. It still feels like a city. You know, you don't live in a city if if you don't enjoy that kind of environment. But it's it's green, obviously. It's full of flowers, but not this. Not only it's also um, I think full of positive green. So from trees to to shrubs, layers of, of greenery, and you feel like you're in in a real natural habitat. We always say that we feel di- kind of dissociated from from nature. And in 2030, in my ideal streets, don't feel that. You don't feel the difference, um, you know, from, from being in the countryside or being in a city. Children everywhere will have been taught to grow vegetables. Any child over the age of four is captivated by what happens when a bean is put in a pot of compost and watered. And we did a big experiment in my area during lockdown, showing children how to do this. And they so seized the opportunity that there was a series of online classes in growing their own food, with the result that their parents had to convert their backyards into vegetable farms. When people talk about the markets in this future, uh, they won't mean some kind of abstract, quantitative, global type of thing they'll be talking about actual markets where they're going to trade. The roads and streets are seen as as common space, serving the needs of everybody, including moving and stationary vehicles. Uh, And as a consequence, the neighborhood feels safe enough that parents allow their children to start playing out around the ages of four and five, maybe initially on the doorstep and over time, and, and even prior to that, out with their children. And as children and parents get used to this, their freedoms children are granted and the distances they're allowed to roam will increase incrementally so that, you know, by the age of eight and nine, most children are allowed to go off to a local neighbourhood or call for mates or go up to the local shop for bits and bats, ride their bikes to school and pick up their friends and have adventures. There's a new department 
and that department is a department of decency, joyfulness and experience. And if you want to pass a new law, and we've also gone through all the old ones, it has to pass through there. So you can say, yeah, it was, it was money, but you know what? It won't feel too good. So we're not going to pass that one. And that's it. Because we've got to look at how life feels. And for lots of people, life don't feel so good. And whether you're rich or playful or not, you only get around 80 years. And I think that should be 80 years of happiness and joy and interaction. People are learning in every way that makes sense to them. People are not sort of disciplined into learning in boxes for hours and standardized tests, but are learning from other people in the community, from elders, from younger people, about the things that are important to them in the ways that work best for them. And people are contributing as they're able and doing so in community and conversation with elders, with young people. It's a multi-generational world and it's one in which people are not only operating for the joy and pleasure of the moment, but also operating from a perspective that takes into account the joy and pleasure of seven generations into the future of all beings. Every bus stop could have a, some kind of green roof on it. Every waste bin could have a mini green roof. There's all these amazing habitats which we're just not currently using, which could be put into use. Prosperity no longer means GDP. Now it means prosperity in its entirety. How does life feel? Does your heart feel good? Are you healthy? Health is no longer a faddish judgment of perceived appearance. It's now the healthier you are, the better you can play the game. So we're all just healthier because we feel better. Childhood is recognised as a valuable period of life in its own right, uh, where children are recognised as being playful and, and play is valued as the way in which children express themselves and, and engage in the world around them. Uh, a society that understands that playing is an essential part of, of people's everyday lives, that brings joy is fun or at least non-serious and makes life more interesting and pleasurable for everyone around. When you walk past people in the street, people look at you in the eye. You've got to look someone in the eye if you're sharing a game with each other. Now you walk around the street and we're all in the game together. We all recognise it as a game. We know there are rules, we know some people break it, but we don't kind of really mind. We're just getting on with a good time. Each school is generating their own electricity. They're upcycling materials and circular systems. They capture the rainwater and cycle that and use that within the school as appropriate. Their retrofitted passive house design has the highest standard of insulation, has heat recovery ventilation, all those little bodies are giving out enough heat to keep the buildings at a nice temperature of 18 degrees Celsius throughout the year. Teachers and children all enjoy this wonderful experience of going to school because they are being rehearsed for, for you know, in many respects to be the next stewards of, of, of the planet. And I think parents and the community would create this shared responsibility, not just teachers. By 2030, people are realising that most of the things that they want to do, they want to do together and that those things work better when the maximum number of intelligent voices are involved in, in the design of them. Education, for example, stopped being based on this idea that you pushed knowledge into people sitting uncomfortably in chairs in itchy school uniforms 
And instead, that you said to young humans, go and learn, we'll help you. We'll follow you. I'm imagining walking down the street of a large town and I come across the town square and this is what's called the Pynix, P-Y-N-X, which is the ancient Greek word or the name of the place where they held their city assemblies, popular assemblies. And in this particular Pynix, in this imaginary town in 2030, there's a group of people, about 50 of them, and they're split into two halves. Half the group just wearing their normal clothes and the other half are wearing these amazing long green robes like Japanese kimonos and they're discussing the future of transport in the city and this discussion they're having is a citizens assembly they've been randomly selected and it's based on a Japanese model called future design and what happens is the half who are wearing normal clothes are told that they're residents from the present day and the other half with the great big green kimonos on, uh, told to imagine themselves as residents from 30 years into the future. All the experiments in Japan in the past have shown that the those wearing the kimonos imagining themselves in the future come up with much more radical plans for their city. In 2005, a friend of mine wrote a book. His name is Paul Hawken called Blessed Unrest. In that book, he wanted to write about the environmental movements that were at that time current in North America. He decided to start by just making a list of them. He gave up on that when he reached about 180,000 organizations. This world can no longer afford the unbelievably dangerous situation where humanity has lived on a knife edge of really potential Armageddon for three quarters of a century. We'll have a shift by that time of a huge trend in moving our money, our lives and our security away from the habit of war towards a manifest commitment to prevent violent conflict and build sustainable peace throughout the world. That'll happen through things like a massive divestment trend from the production of weapons, just as has happened with the divestment trend from fossil fuels into renewables. The same thing will happen because it'll have appeared, especially during the pandemic, to be absurd to be developing weapons of massive destructive power when what we need is hospitals, vaccines, trained people in the prevention of further pandemics and so on. By then we hopefully, and it's a big, it's a big task to be free of these overbearing, moralizing narratives that divide all of us. And in the case of 
debt it's about the idea of the debtors as sinners and somehow the blame and shame surrounding them and, and how we people are pitted against each other in these kind of economic terms and how that hopefully we will have through yeah storytelling art playfulness combined with um, campaigning and policies we'll be coming through that towards the realization that we are kind of, we are all in this together people realized that elections were a very peculiar mechanism, that there were lots of different ways of doing them. And in fact, one of the things that seemed to work very well is what's called sortition. Sortition is random selection of people as temporary governors. People suddenly realized that actually it really did make sense to try to achieve democracy. That until then, it had that word had been used as a kind of um, advertising slogan in a way. But usually as soon as people got into power, they tried to do everything they could to dismantle it in order to keep power. Sortition sort of got around that problem in that generally it, it produced people who had no interest in being in power. They were people who had lives already and were not interested in power for its own sake. Democracy is something that people believe in again, and people believe that they actually have agency in in their lives, both on the kind of personal level, uh, but also on the political level. That that there is that the the system, the democratic system, which is today clearly not working, is now functioning, and that there is also, I think, in this 2030 of of the not too distant future, that there is a feeling that 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 we do really want to look after one another. also had this amazing truth and reconciliation process and that happened on a number of levels and you know when I imagine that there's you know our families were a part of it we were a part of it right it kind of irrespective of age and in that truth and reconciliation we really faced into our profound harming and exploitation of other peoples and of the planet and inside of that made reparations apologized looked at the collective trauma and were able to move through that trauma together, right? With that space being held for those who are harmed to get to heal and transform and those who did harm to get to heal and transform, coming back into that wholeness. First piece is, is ending violence, right? Both the violence that's happening 
from the external world towards somebody's body, whether from people or systems, and the violence we carry in our bodies that says, I must be smaller rather than big, I can't trust people who tell me they love me, and it doesn't matter that I long for, I have intention, it's not going to happen, so it's ending violence. It's a future in which all Black girls, queer and trans people, are safe from all forms of violence and have all the resources they need to not just survive, but to thrive and to reach their highest human potential. So it's a world that you walk through that is green and bright and clean in the way that you're describing, but it's also filled with laughter and joy from people of a wide representation of genders. I'm going to take you on a bird's eye view of some of the centers of policymaking in 2030. By that time, I trust that the huge groundswell of appreciation for the achievements of female presidents and prime ministers during the pandemic will have translated into a much fairer representation of women in senior decision-making global positions. In 1989, the Soviet Union collapsed. I had been going to Russia quite a lot before that in the 80s. The collapse was absolute and final and very, very fast. In fact, a great book came out of it by a historian called Alexei Yerchak. The book was called, beautiful title, it was called Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More. And that's exactly what it felt that this absolutely solid, eternal regime disappeared in one night. It just went. That was amazing. But the more amazing thing was that everybody was ready for it. Because in the years prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union, it had ceased functioning very well at all. And so everybody had invented their own workarounds. In fact, another society had been born as it were, underneath this carapace called the Soviet Union. I mention this because I think we're always living under a carapace. There's always a carapace of power, which seems to be where the action is, but actually it's just fossilized. The life is happening somewhere else. And people were ready to take on this challenge. And in fact, as I said, they had been rehearsing for it. And I think this is exactly the same case now in what we call Western civilization, if you like. We've seen people starting to organize themselves to build a different kind of future. And when this collapse happens, I think it will be as fast as the one that happened in the Soviet Union. We'll suddenly realize that the carapace, the tax havens, the, the fintech industry, as they call it, the politics of envy and enmity, all of that will suddenly be seen to be completely irrelevant, a kind of machine designed to keep the carapace intact. What's happening in the meantime is that people like you, actually, like me, perhaps to a lesser extent, are 
working out this new future and not only working it out intellectually, but starting to build some of it. When we wake up in 2030, this is how it is possible that that could happen. Your, your project sounds, given the complete mess that we're in today, it sounds hopelessly idealistic to most people. But what I want to say to them is that it, it isn't. It is possible that societies can undergo these very, very big changes very quickly. Because the important part of the change is what happens in people's minds. In my experience, minds are changing very, very, very quickly.